Welcome to Ira's Everything Bagel, where I talk with intriguing people about everything, their passions, pursuits, and points of view. There's no doubt that we all live in a digital world, and for the most part, we have adjusted to it. But is it a more human world? Are we helped or hindered by technology and living our lives as humans? My guest has some answers and insights to our digital present and possible future. He's David Sachs, author of The Future is Analog, How to Create a More Human World, published by Public Affairs and available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all the usual places. And you can follow David on Twitter at SachsDavid and on LinkedIn. And David, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ira. It's great to be here. I, I'm going to take umbrage, if I want to use that term, it always sounds ridiculous when it comes out of my mouth, with what you said at the beginning, right? You said, we all know we live in a digital world. And this is kind of the thing that got me started writing this book. I would go to these conferences to speak about a previous book that I wrote called The Revenge of Analog, which was, let's say, the precursor to this, not a sequel. but And that book looked at why we were seeing the growth again of things like vinyl records and film cameras and paper notebooks and bookstores, all analog goods and ideas that had been resurgent in the past couple of years, right? Right. And- you know, people would say, well, you know, but we're living in a digital world. And I was like, look around you, touch your face, touch the desk. Like none of this is digital. We live, the world is analog. If the world is digital, we're dead <laughs> and the computers yes. have taken over. <laughs> um, so I, 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 you know, that, that was kind of the starting place of where this book is. And the statement that's the title of the book, the future is analog is very much a challenge to that notion that we all just have blindly accepted over the past, you know, three decades or four decades, that not only is the future digital in every single aspect of our lives, and that's inevitability, but that we live in a digital world. And that's not true. I, li I think Excuse we live in a partially digital world, but I like the opening because I knew it would get you going. It would get your blood boiling. Man, and there, blood there you go. Yeah, Old blood's Mike. not digital, so it works. But you said in your book the following, and I quote, the digital future largely kept its promise. And you, had, of course, had entered journalism in an era of paper, and you felt its rapid transformation into an online first medium with every diminished paycheck, I'm reading from your book, and notice about <laughs> another shuttered publication. So in those two snippets from your book, you really, I think, are summing up before we even talked about what your concept is for the book which is, yes, the digital future has kept its promise, but on the same time, hey, I come from a world of pen and paper and real and touching faces and things like that. Is there a way to integrate those two? So I'm going to leave it up to you to bring us to a sense of where we actually are and how do we cope? Because what you do in your book, I'm almost done with my lengthy monologue here. What you do in your book is you do it by uh, different days of the week, let us say that, and different subjects. So we have school and we have commerce. I'm going to shut up now and let you go. No, I, I, I uh, happen to have you keep talking. Um, <laughs> it's your podcast after all. Right? <laughs> That's true. <laughs> if you can't talk in your own podcast, what's the point of having it? Absolutely podcast? right. You know, the book is a reflection and was sort of spurned by the experience in the pandemic, especially early on, when every aspect of everyone's life pretty much moved online and moved to be mediated through digital technology. You know, everyone all of a sudden had to work remotely unless your job involved made you be there in person, like a doctor, ER doctor, or, you know, someone who works at a sewage treatment plant or something like that. 
every kid in the world went to school online, at least for a couple of months. Everybody experienced what it was like to shop for groceries online or other things that they needed because stores were closed in many places, uh, again, for weeks or months. You know, entertainment, spirituality and religion, everything that we did in the course of our day-to-day lives and was always predicted to become an activity that we would do in the future digitally, suddenly we we did. And it, for the most part, was not a pleasant experience. There were things that were easier. There were things that were better. Maybe people got, preferred working from home because they didn't have to commute into the office or it was more convenient to order their you know, chicken and tortillas and, you know, cake mix online than going to a grocery store. And you're saving money on dry cleaning too. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Dry cleaning. Exactly. But, you know, for the most part, it was a pretty awful experience for most people that I know. And it, it showed them that this was a future that was really lacking, that digital was so far out of balance, um, had become everything we'd had. It was the only thing we had. And, and it was not enough. It wasn't satisfactory. It wasn't joyful, wasn't meaningful, sucked pretty much. And so that is the question, right? How do we come out of that experience and look back on what it was like in each of our lives or for companies or institutions and say, okay, what parts of that worked and what parts didn't? And why didn't it work to move that aspect of life or our world online? And how can we build a future where digital technology is going to keep growing and become more powerful and have more capabilities and you know sell us more things but how can we do that with a critical eye and thinking critically about what actually we value in the world and where do we want the sort of human tactile physical face-to-face community-based things that matter to us schools right and where do we where can we you know integrate the technology to support that rather than try to replace it. Because I think that was the thing. It was this idea that, oh, everything's going to move online and that's our destiny, right? And that's you know what, what Mark Zuckerberg's trying to peddle now. He's like, all you need to do for everything in life is like strap a screen to your face and you'll get it in this metaverse or whatever it is that he's clearly not selling very well because laid off like I don't know, 10% of the company. And it, that's just, it's like a childish, naive vision of the future. Can we, can we come to a vision of the future? Can we start talking about it based on the real world experience we had of living everything through the screen to learn from that and build a future where you know humanity is sort of the central part of it and not something that has to be replaced or disrupted away? Is there a difference between, we talk about the digital world, but isn't there a difference between the digital world and technology in general. What I mean by that is this. You referenced records, LPs. Well, that's electronic in a way, but it's not digital. And there are a lot of analog elements to our lives that are not digital, but are electronic. Or mechanical, yeah. Or mechanical, yes, indeed. Car, right? right. So is there yeah. a bifurcation there between the digital side and all the other elements of technology? Um, I, it's, it's an interesting question, uh, you know, from a purely sort of, <laughs> excuse me, engineering perspective. Yes. The difference is that. Well, I, maybe uh, the okay. impact on our, on our psyche, we could differentiate between the digital mm. side as what you wrote about and the technological side, 
which can encompass mechanical, but also be, I'm thinking of the transistor radio or just ordinary speakers or Mm -hmm. the light bulb. Those are things that have been around a long time. And yes, they've had an impact on society, but they haven't dehumanized us. What I think the premise of your book is that the digital side of technology has to some degree dehumanized us. And then you lay out in your chapters how this affects people in various categories. As I mentioned, there's work, school, commerce, et cetera. Yeah. The the difference is that, you know, each of those separate machines, a record player, uh, you know, a, a machine that's built around a factory, right? A car, a bicycle. You know, there are plus and minuses. When a lot of those things came out, people were worried about the effects of them. And in many cases, it was sort of overblown. And in other cases, like the automobile is like, oh, it's proved to be the ruination of humanity. The difference with, you know, this, the phone, uh, the the phone, and I'm holding up my iPhone and the computer we're speaking on is that it's everything. It's the totality. It has captured not only so much of our imagination, but our economy and the way we do things. And the promise of it is that it will keep doing more. And we've seen that the more we mediate our lives, our commerce, our social interactions, our civic life through digital technology, hardware and software, you know, the internet, whatever you want to do it, the more pervasive those effects are. Um, the more we see that for good and, and bad, right? There are many things that are just, you know, it's 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 much better. Airplanes are much safer now because of all the computers keeping the systems in check. That's a great thing. But there are other areas like social media where it's like, oh, this is the consequences, the negative consequences probably greatly outweigh the positive benefits of of something like that. And it's the totality of it. It's the addictiveness of it. It's the way that it's now kind of an appendage of our bodies, right? The record player sits there. The television sits there. And if you walk away from it, you know, that's it. It's it's not with you. But the phone, more than the, I mean, the, the computer is a category and the phone is just the per, the most personal of the computers. Right? And well, the, the computer watch as well, the Apple watch is with you all the, the watch time is as well. the appendage. Yeah. Right. The ex, extra sort of thing, right? The earphones, whatever you want to call it. But I want to play uh, devil's advocate for a moment though. Of course. David. And that is humans are generally lazy. <laughs> and <laughs> digital technology makes that's a perfect it, point stop there yes the it makes us makes it even easier to be lazy i don't have to go to the supermarket and deal with obnoxious co-shoppers as i call them or the the, the person checking me out or small narrow aisles and have to fight for a parking spot i can order my groceries online they are delivered to my front door there's some effort taking them from the front door into the house, unless I have a service that will bring them into the house and put them away for me. I, that's probably the next stage. But my point mm-hmm. is, humans are by nature lazy. Doesn't digital technology, as I'll call it here, doesn't digital cause us to be even more lazy? I think it's a negative, but the point is it caters to our human nature. Of course. It's, 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 it's there because it works and it's there because it's attractive and, and it sell it. I mean, look at all these restaurant delivery apps, right? Business model is horrible. None of them make money. Not a single one of them makes profit. And then yet there's, you know, young immigrant men on e-bikes uh, zipping up and down the streets of Toronto here, 
uh, where I live, you know, with backpacks full of pad thai. Because people like, I, I've seen people order Starbucks coffee to the house <laughs> next door to me. There, I, you know, I don't live that in is, a far flung suburb. That is to my point, live, isn't it? <laughs> I live in an area, a walkable downtown of a city where within, you know, 300 feet, there's like four coffee shops where you can go and get a cup of coffee. That's better than the Starbucks stuff. Unless your neighbor is disabled, in which case you're being they're harshly not, critical. No, oh, they're, okay. They're idiots in their you know, <laughs> the, in early 20s. They're terrible. Um, uh, I doubt they're listening to this podcast. But that um, is that is to the point, though, that- Right. It's, it's can, convenience. Digital yes, promises. Convenience. Digital promises the ultimate inconvenience. And that's, that's the attraction of it. And I think that was the thing that people discovered in the pandemic when they started ordering groceries maybe for the first time. When they started going to meetings on Zoom, instead of- getting dressed, showered, shaving, driving to the office, you know, uh, sitting through the meeting, you know, feeling hungry, whatever, like the convenience of this is tremendous. Look, I'm speaking to you. You're in Las Vegas. I'm in Toronto. You know, we're we're talking on a podcast. I don't have to fly to Las Vegas. You don't have to fly to Toronto. It's incredibly convenient. You know, I had my little salami sandwich for breakfast like two minutes before. You know, my wife was like on her call and on her Zoom call. And you're like, oh yeah, no problem. I can wait, right? Very convenient. But what are we missing from that convenience? Okay, so you talked about your grocery store example. You know, there's a couple of things, right? We're missing the information of the experience. You know, I've done online grocery delivery, uh, and for the most part, it works and stuff gets there. But certain stuff is terrible. Tomatoes and avocados are just like, you need to go and use the body that you were given and we've evolved with all these senses to be able to sort of touch and feel and see and take in that information, which you can't from a flat stock photo of an avocado. But the other thing that happens when I go to the grocery store is I I meet people. I see people I know. I see interactions. I learn informa- you know, ideas about the world. I walk. I get out in the world and away from the inside of my house. I mean, this was sort of the promise and the peril of this digital future that we all experienced. The promise was the sales pitch in the future. You know, I remember going to like Epcot Center as a kid at Disney. And, you know, there was like the horizons, the future pavilion. It was like, in the future, you know, you'll live on a space colony and robots will cook your food and you'll never need to go anywhere. Things will be delivered to your door. And then all of a sudden it's like, hey, you never need to leave your house. You want to exercise? Here's a Peloton bike. Here's a video on YouTube of how to do yoga. You, your kid needs to go to school. School starting in two minutes right on this you know, computer with their, with their thing. You want to go to work? Here's your office right here. It's replicated. You can even do a conference in this conferencing software. You know, you want to, oh, it's it's synagogue. It's, you know, Saturday. Like, here's your rabbi right on the thing. Here's your nephew's bris, you know, like cut in, you know, we'll, we'll, we're going to cut in close for the cutting in close. Um, uh, that's the everything bagel theme right there. Exactly. Uh, you know, and, and, and what was it like for most people? It was awful. It was a form of solitary confinement. Think about the greatest punishment we have for people outside of capital punishment, which doesn't exist in my country. You know, it's you will be in a room alone and no one will talk to you. Right. And that's what we willingly were kind of moving ourselves toward. And so, yeah, it's super convenient to do these things. It's super convenient to stay at home and never go to a comedy club. Why would you go to a comedy club? Um, you can watch the best comedians in the world, alive or dead, on 
you know, YouTube or streaming services, you know, you want to see a Rodney Dangerfield, like stand-up special. It's there two seconds. I could find Dangerfield, you know, at the sands or whatever. Did you realize um, that some of the people listening to us are saying, you know, that sounds actually pretty good. Just being able to stay at home. Yeah, The, the end this. of this interview is everyone just Googling Rodney Dangerfield <laughs> special online. And they're like, Hey, I'm a Dr. Vinny Boombots. Um, but you know, here's the thing, right? I went after two years of not going to any shows and concerts because things were closed here in, in Canada. We had much bigger restrictions and I was wary of the virus and all that. I went to my friend's comedy show a year ago and I laughed harder than I had laughed in two and a half years. And a lot of the comedians there, they were good, but they weren't amazing. I laughed harder than when I watched the Ali Wong special or any of the great sort of Netflix specials of comedians that I've been watching because there's the convenience of that is outweighed by the the richness of the experience. And if we're not aiming for the richness of the human experience and we're just voting for convenience, then we are building a lesser future. To play devil's advocate once more, there is a percentage of the population that prefers to be alone or in a solitary environment. And for them, this is nirvana. Being able to stay at home, get your groceries, no, get your streaming it's not. services. It's not. It, th- they're there were studies that came out during the pandemic, which said that actually the people who were craving the social interaction the most were people who referred to themselves as introverts, right? Because they need, they still need social interaction. It may give them anxiety. They may have fears around it, but it, it is a human need. The biggest and most pervasive growing problem of public health in the world is loneliness and isolation. And that's caused by people not going out. And that's caused by people voting to stay in and just click and order their food instead of going to a restaurant to eat or, 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 or seeing other people, right? The CDC says that loneliness is an indicator of early death from every sort of cause, overdose, addictions, accidents, suicide, even things like heart disease and diabetes, which would seem completely unrelated to someone's sense of loneliness is if someone's lonely or isolated, their risk of that goes up as well. And so this technology that we built is, it can bring us together. You could find out where concerts are. You can have something like Meetup, which is actually a forum that's going to inform you about real world get-togethers and social get-togethers. And that's wonderful. But a lot of it, like social media or just sort of streaming, or again, the convenience of grocery delivery or, or restaurant delivery is antisocial. And that's that can be deadly. That's that's a negative thing. You know, if the future we're building is one where everybody stays at home more often, that's a pretty dark future. My third and final devil's advocate position. There are some cities where crime is a major issue. You should and call it a rainbow bagel. Yeah, there you go. This is my rainbow <laughs> bagel question. A devil's advocate or just an unnecessary Well, there, there are product? cities where, where crime is rampant and people, by staying at home and having all of their convenient situations at home, food, TV, podcasts like ours, etc., they avoid crime because they're not out and about in areas where they, if they go to this place or that place or they go to the theater... On their way over there, they may get mugged. Something else may happen. I'm playing devil's advocate here. I don't necessarily agree with my position, but someone has to challenge you. 
and make it more interesting. Thank you, Ira. I appreciate the challenge. Absolutely. And I step up to it. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, yes, crime is rising in in most American cities, from what I've read, um, and that's a horrible thing. And there's all sorts of reasons to be debated why that is. But here's here's the truth of what happens in cities when people stay home and they refuse to go out. They get more dangerous, right? What is well, wait a minute. You say right, like I, I'm going to agree with you. I don't know if they're going to get more dangerous staying at home. No, they they get more dangerous. The the you know if people stay away from streets and the streets are empty because people are afraid and staying away from them and staying home, then there's fewer people on those streets, except perhaps the people that are mugging people, and those streets become even more dangerous. I see. Okay. Um, there is there is you know a link. Jane Jacobs, the great urban sort of writer, wrote about it. Safe. Streets are busy streets. Uh, and she didn't mean, you know, full of cars. She meant you don't feel you feel unsafe when you're walking alone at night in an area where there's no one. If you're walking on a busy street, it's a safe feeling place because there's safety in that numbers of humanity. No one's gonna, you know, it, it'd have to be very brazen and it happens, but it, it's a much rarer thing. It's you know, in those areas where people are home alone, it's in those areas where people are are sort of cowering that it's it's unsafe. And, and you know, there's some of the s- most dangerous places in America are not these like downtown mean streets, you know, 1980s style New York. It's like quiet suburban areas where nobody's around. And so nobody knows or even cares if anything can happen to you. I, I, I think, you know, it's it's not a it's not a super clear thing. But I think this idea of like, yeah, oh, you know, stay safe, stay home. That's what we did during the pandemic. And for good reason, and for the the greater health and, and the lives of millions and millions of people, which we, we probably say, but like, it gets to a point where, uh, when does that tip in the other direction? And what do communities need? They need that vibrancy that not only gives them the sense of joy and the sense of culture, human connection and, 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 and social connection that's, that's beneficial to us for health and mental well-being. But again, that, that greater sense of safety. While you were writing the book, you talked to a lot of experts and you were, and you, and you outlined it in your book in very, again, in various chapters. I like the way you set up the book. What was the most surprising thing you found out from your point of view about the digital world and the analog world? What was the most surprising fact or feature about those two worlds. Interesting. It's a really interesting sort of question that I don't know if anyone's asked me for. And as my brain slowly processes, I'll give you time. It's okay. The particular answer. <laughs> <laughs> not digital. Not, nope, no AI here, and barely any regular eye to go with. Um, I, I think to me the most surprising thing, and this is you know. A devil's. This is a rainbow bagel of an answer for you. Um, is you know, for decades we had been told by people who created this technology in Silicon Valley, by uh, <coughs> people in the media, by uh, you know those in the business world and the consulting world, that you know this was the future and this will work and this is what we're all headed for. And I think the thing that was surprising for me about that was like how it was surprising that people even thought it would work. 
Like it was surprising how simply we just assumed that and how wrong it was. And and I'll give you a perfect example, right? Unquestionably, the the clearest this is a terrible idea and there is no future in this was online school and virtual school. Every kid around the world went through virtual school for months, if not years, from kindergarten all the way to grad school. And for the most part, it was a dismal failure in terms of academic performance, in terms of social performance, in terms of just everybody's lives being upended and everybody hating it. And yet the brightest minds had been trying versions of this correspondence courses, courses by CD-ROM, you know, video lectures by the people who were created Google's self-driving car unit um, that received billions and billions of funding. And it always failed. It had, it had been failing. This model of education, which fundamentally understood what, what education was, had been failing for decades in many ways. There was tons of evidence. There was, you know, the studies had been done, brightest minds didn't work out, and they just kept trying it. And all of a sudden, it they tried it with everybody in the world, and it was a total failure. And they're like, oh, I'm so surprised that didn't happen. And to me, that was the most surprising thing. The most surprising thing was how surprised we were that this stuff kind of sucked. Like people were like, I don't know. I tried this Zoom cocktail party and it, <laughs> it, it was boring. I'm, I'm shocked. I'm shocked that sitting here in my living room alone with a drink in my hand was nowhere near as enjoyable as if six people were in the living room sharing drinks and food and laughter with me. Shocked. I'm surprised. And I think it's this, it's not a naivete. It's, it's a, it's a, it's the way we sort of build a narrative around the future. We love a good, simple story. We love a fantasy, you know, that this is the basis of most major faiths in the world. It's like, here's a simple story about how the world works. And digital promised us that for this story of the future. Oh, in the future, we're not going to have to worry about these things because the cars will be self-driving, they'll be electric, and your food will be delivered by a drone. And, you know, you'll just eat this and you'll get healthy and blah, 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 blah. It's like this this utopian sort of of fantasy. And when it doesn't turn out that way, people are are shocked. Look at the world of cryptocurrency, which is just collapsing in front of our eyes. And uh, anyone who knew anything about reality of the sort of world of finance were like, what? This is you can't just make up money and say your own rules and like it'll all just work out and you'll make billions of dollars. It's there's there's a reckoning here. And the people are like, no, 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 because you know, the rules are different this time. And you know, this is exception. And you know, as soon as we adopt this and get rid of fiat currency, like there'll be no more war. You're like, okay, so just to get this straight, <laughs> we get rid of the entire global monetary system that has been developed over the past, you know, several hundred years and all the institutions that underpin it that have, you know, not been perfect, but certainly prevented like complete and total financial collapse and allow people to do all sorts of things and, and the economy and trade and everything to sort of work. And we replace it with an unproven technology created by a guy that nobody actually knows who he is and administered by a bunch of like arrogant 25-year-olds who drive green Lamborghinis. <laughs> Sounds good to me. Yeah. Before I let you go, last question. Sign me up. Are you optimistic or pessimistic 
about the future, whether it is digital or analog or a mix of the two. Well, Ira, like you, I'm Jewish, so healthily pessimistic, of course, about many things in this world. But I am, in many ways, optimistic about the future because I think we as humans still understand our limits. And it may take us a while to realize what those are, but we come up against them. And when we do, we we have the ability, and we have done so in the past, to sort of change and make corrections and understand and learn from our mistakes. We don't always do it in the climate. I fear that we've really taken way too long to do that, and we've really missed the boat, and the consequences are you know, drastic and, and more dire every day. You live in Las Vegas, you know, Lake Mead is like a small puddle that a dog peed in the other day. Like it's, it's, you know, it's, it's gone. But I think the reality is this, there are two realities about the future. And I think these things are what we have to figure out. One is that, you know, digital technology, new digital technology is going to continue to grow and be developed, be more advanced, AI, robotics, big data, you know, whatever next things coming down the pipe, someone's inventing it and it's going to make major changes in the way we live our lives, whether we work or play or our communities or whatever. But the other thing is that we are analog creatures. We are flesh and blood beings, biological animals on this planet that we still relate to. And as long as that's the truth, then we are going to require to sort of see the future and live it in a way that meets those analog needs. Well, I think that's a great way to leave it. My guest has been David Sachs. He's author of The Future is Analog, How to Create a More Human World, published by Public Affairs, and available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, in all the usual places. And you can follow David on Twitter at SachsDavid and on LinkedIn. David, thanks for being on the show. Ira, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And join us every Thursday for a new schmear on Ira's Everything Bagel.